Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. I grew up on my family farm. I'm a dirt road Democrat. This is In Conversation with Frank Schaefer with North Carolina Senator Erica Smith, exploring her run for U.S. Senate and her belief that it's time for government to work for all of us instead of just for the wealthy and well-connected. And uh, those of you who know that I campaigned for Elizabeth Warren will know that I'm totally on board with this. And I welcome you today, Erica. Thank you for being with us. Um, it's a real pleasure to have you. I think I met you briefly in New York City a while back. I, I think we met before as well, Frank, and I'm so happy to be in conversation with you again today. Thank you. Now, uh, before we delve into the kind of professional parts of all of this, um, Please give me a thumbnail about who you are when you're not Senator Erica Smith and just on the kind of human level. And I'll, I'll start by telling you a little about myself so you know what I'm talking about. You know, people introduce me as an author or a writer and they say, what do you do? And I know what they mean. But what I do is I do child care for my three youngest grandchildren. What I do is I cook after school snacks for them. What I do is I take care of my pet dog, Zip. And I can't get to sleep without him cuddled up on my bed with me. That's actually what I do. Now, I also earn my living as a writer. And I meet fascinating people like you on this podcast. But what I do is not um, what people really mean by that. And I think that's a problem in our culture. We're all defined by our job titles instead of our human relationships and what really matters to us. So before we start with the politics and everything else, let's just talk about each other personal as if we met on an airplane and liked each other and want to get to know each other. So who are you when you're not being Senator Smith? Well, when I'm not being Senator Smith, I'm a mother of four children, three of them living. Um, I have a grandbaby girl on the way. We're expecting her the first week of October. So I'm really, really excited about that. Um, I call myself a dirt road Democrat because I, I live on a um, dirt road. I grew up on my family's farm and it's 2021. That dirt road is still not paved. So yeah. um, I, I live in a place where I'm fighting for equity. I, I like to call myself an equity builder. And how do I build equity? I build equity through being a um, public school educator um, where I um, support STEM education and fight to build capacity in students so that they can be globally competitive. Yeah. Um, classroom teacher for about 17 years. What grades were you teaching? My son's a teacher, so I'm, I'm always curious about teachers. I teach secondary math and science. Um, I teach physics, algebra one, two, uh, geometry, calculus. And so really, really excited about the rural area that I live in and that I service in the school system because it's so remote. Um, there's so much underinvestment. And so anytime that I can inspire this next generation to be able to reach their full potential through exposure in STEM, I really fight hard uh, for doing that. And that's whether I'm Erica, the senator, or Erica, the educator, yeah. Erica, builder in the community. I am a um, an ecumenical leader as well. I'm an ordained clergy woman. My faith is very important to me and it's what I have used to help build capacity in communities. Um, what, kind, what, what kind of denomination are we talking about? I am um, a member of the um, ordained through the General Baptist okay. uh, Convention of North Carolina and that's under the National Baptist USA. Sure. Now today you were mentioning that you, speaking of being on the dirt road, you were driving some distance to do this podcast interview with me on In Conversation with Frank Schaefer because 
where you live, the broadband's a little weak, if, if existent at all. So you came, I think you said to your sister-in-law's house? No, my, my twin sister. I haven't. Oh, your twin her. sister. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Forgive me. No, I was. part is my mole. I have a mole. Yeah. I was talking so fast at the beginning with you because we were late because we had our own technical problems. Uh, So we were a few minutes late and I was a little frustrated, you know, flustered. So I went too quick. But um, so how far did you drive to do today's program with me? I drove about an hour and a half because I I really wanted us to have a strong conversation. And I just can't do that from my home. There are so many Americans, so many North Carolinians, about 400,000 of them, um, including myself, that do not have access to reliable broadband and broadband yeah. is strong enough for you to be able to get through a Zoom meeting and have a strong connection and not keep buffering and being yeah. able to upload your documents and everything else. Well, that was very, very kind of you. I owe you one. So when you're when you're running for the Senate, I will come down and do some speaking for you. And I'm not kidding about that. I was part of something called Vote Common Good. We traveled to 15 states. We voted. We 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 campaigned actively for 30 some congressional folks, many of whom won. And my friend Ted Lieu, the congressman from California, told me that we really did do our little bit to bring a few of the evangelical white voters who had been voting for Trump and make them reconsider just a little bit. So we peeled off a tiny percentage or contributed to that in getting them to vote different uh, in 2018. So uh, when I say that I'd be glad to come down and, and work for you, I will. Thank you, Frank. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So now let's jump in here. Um, how how many years? Okay, so you were teaching and when you were teaching, is that the platform you ran from when you were in the Carolina Senate, uh, State Senate? Were you also teaching at the same time or did you stop one and do the other? Yeah, well, let me back up a little bit. I was an engineer for 13 years. I used to work for Boeing in Seattle, Washington, but North Carolina has always been home for me. It's where I was born at Fort Bragg, Fayetteville. My dad was in the Air Force, and it's also where I grew up in northeastern North Carolina on my family's farm, um, harvesting cucumbers, corn, soybeans, you name it, uh, definitely hard work. And so I, and when I spent that time in engineering, um, it was wonderful. I saw that we could send technology to Jupiter and back, but yet, you know, we struggle with, um, you know, getting that same technology and that same access to developing countries beyond our borders and even the rural parts of the state and nation within our borders. Mm-hmm. I transitioned in 2000, um, between 2001, 2002, my dad had early onset of dementia. And so that's why I relocated. I moved back home to the family farm to help my mom so that we could, um, you know, make sure my dad could live out his golden years at home. He'd done so much to serve his country and raising six children, five girls and one boy. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point, uh, after commuting to D.C. for two years, um, you know, for three days a week, I was like, OK, I've got to do something else. I, You know, I wanted to go into public service. I had just finished my master's degree in theology, religious studies from Howard University. And so in that transition, I became a um, an associate uh, pastor of a church um, back in my home area in Northampton County. And then I um, also went into the teaching profession, teaching secondary math and science. And so as a teacher, um, I, um, you know, worked on understanding what Nelson Mandela said, that a quality education is the greatest civil rights tool of the 21st century. And so I saw that as a way to build capacity in people so that they can change their social, socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. Um, after being a teacher for uh, three and a half years, then I um, ran for school board because it was so important to look at how policy is effective and making sure um, underserved students have the resources they they, they need to be competitive. Um, so serving on my school board, I served on the school board from 2008 until 2014. In 2013, Tom Tillis, um, Senator Tom Tillis, sure. became Speaker of the House um, in the North Carolina House. In his first term as Speaker, they fired 5,000 teacher assistants. Mm. They took away teacher career um, tenure pay. They took away the Teacher Fellows Program, which is a scholarship program that we use to strengthen the teaching profession. And with that onslaught, of, that assault on public education, uh, that's what inspired me to take my lesson plan from the classroom floor to the state capitol floor to advocate for um, education and economic development and opportunities all over the state. So that's what led me into the state Senate. And then I served three terms. And now I am running for U.S. Senate. And you could say Tom Tillis inspired me again when I ran in 2020. Um, 
his his seat was up and I led him in every poll, really excited about the breath of fresh air that I was um, mm. potentially bringing to the people of North Carolina. Unfortunately, I was not successful in that primary. Cal Cunningham um, went on to lose to Tom Tillis. And so now we have an open seat. Richard Burr is retiring. And those same issues, fighting for working families, fighting for um, uh, uh, addressing the extreme income inequality that we have in this country, that we have in this state. Also fighting for clean air, clean water. Um, I've always been an environmental steward. And so that's what inspired me to run for U.S. Senate so I could fight for working families all over the state, all mm -hmm. over the nation. I find that the transition from engineering to a theology degree uh, really, really fascinating. Um, let me just go back a little further in time with you uh, and talk about your own kind of religious upbringing. And let me preface that by saying that I've had a, a sort of a long journey that I've written about as an author in, in, in numerous books and memoirs, where I started out in an evangelical white missionary family that was in Europe. And then my dad, Francis Schaeffer, became one of the founders of and prime movers of the religious right in the 1970s and 80s, with my help as his nepotistic sidekick, going around the country, showing a film series we made with Dr. Sievert Koop, who then became Surgeon General, and really led to the foundation of the kind of anti-feminist, um, anti-abortion movement in the 70s and 80s, overtaking the Protestant community. And there's sort of a straight line from there to the election of Donald Trump and the social agenda of the far right. And I bailed from that over 30 years ago and have really been on the other side of the issues and writing about it. So I've kind of seen that transition. And I find that a lot of Democratic candidates, as I tell my friends in Congress, have made a big mistake. And that is just like in the Vietnam era, the flag belonged to the right and the left stopped waving American flags. And so you kept assuming if you saw a flag outside of a house, it was a, a right wing gung ho kind of family. Similarly, the Bible, the scriptures, spirituality, caring for the poor based on the teachings of Jesus and so forth. Um, a lot of Democrats seem to be uncomfortable talking about their faith. And I think it's a real deficit, for instance, with the Hispanic vote, many of whom are Pentecostal Christians, many of whom come from traditional Roman Catholic backgrounds. So I'm so fascinated and, and encouraged by the fact that I'm talking to a candidate for the U.S. Senate who has embraced her faith to the point where she went off and got another degree after you were already an, an educated woman um, of standing in the engineering community. I just want to stop for a moment and say wow, I hope you bring that to the table in the campaign, which I know you will. But let's all pause for a minute and just say, now, here's a Democrat running on a platform of social justice and equality and all these other things, who will be able to sit down with the local Hispanic preacher at an Assemblies of God church, will be able to sit down with uh, folks in both the Black church and white community, be able to sit down and talk about values that are based within her faith and not be embarrassed to do that. And I know that's a long roundabout question, but you understand that you're in a very unique position. And um, not only do I salute you and root for you in this, but I really want to talk about your journey of faith that brought you to get a theological degree, the fact that you're ordained, the fact that you're running, and how you see one package out of that uh, rather than in different compartments. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. You, you bring up um, so many components of that. Thank you for that question, Frank. And I'll have to um, just start off fighting systems of inequity. It has always been about social justice. It has been about our um, calling on our higher 
and higher ideas of how we can build a beloved community. Um, my concentration was in uh, political theology and Christian ethics. Mm. And for me, I've always seen a corollary between casting our cares at the altar on Sunday and also the um, political engagement of the faith-based community that we cast our ballots at the ballot box mm. so that we can realize those cares in the here and now. We don't have to wait until the eschatology. Mm. Um, I am very much in a liberation theology social justice movement, and that's why I chose Howard. I did some um, postgraduate studies at Duke University, at Duke Divinity, and had to suspend my graduate studies because by then I had relocated back home to North Carolina. My parents in 2003, when I started my degree program with Duke, they were on dial-up internet, and it just was so untenable. I could not get logged in the Blackboard. Class would be over before the documents would upload. And yeah. so um, going back to leadership, um, particularly, you know, let's talk about the Black church and, and the liberation theology movement. Understanding that the, in the Black church, we see systems as sinful, systems of economic oppression, systems that would um, provide such limited access to health care that mm -hmm. folks have to ration their insulin to put food on the table mm -hmm. or they go bankrupt because somebody gets sick. And so for me, this was the intersection of pulling together what my faith informed me and fighting for the beloved community that Dr. Martin Luther King talks about, that community where um, you are concerned about taking care of your neighbor, being a good neighbor, but taking care of those who have been disabled enfranchised by this system um, of oppression. And so uh, understanding how critical the, the faith movement was in the civil rights movement, um, you had, you know, so many ecumenical leaders um, on, on all sides who pushed to fight for that equality. So this is a continuation of that leadership. This is a merge of me wanting to re-engineer systems so that they work better, using my business acumen as an engineer to re-engineer policies to look at how policy is personal, but policy can create true structural change. So in understanding that um, and bringing, you know, that broad spe spectrum together, at first when folks say, oh gosh, you know, you were a mechanical engineer, you're working for Boeing, you're on the fast track, um, you were going to make, you know, executive series really, really fast. I, I saw that, and but what was, um, what led me to transition into theology and public service was because I knew that the God-given talent that I was given was not just for me to earn mm. more money it, or a better quality of life for myself. It was to empower me to build a stronger community. And yeah, so, and also to change something about the future for your children, because you're a mother and now you're going to be a grandmother. So, you know, what's interesting, and, and I just want to remind people who are watching or listening on the podcast, this is In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. And today, I'm very honored to be interviewing Erica Smith, who is now a candidate in the U.S. Senate for the U.N.S. Senate, who was formerly in the Carolina State Senate. Um, so, Erica, when you look toward the, the run that you're making, I have two questions for you, and you can answer them in any order you want. We're, we're going to put links with the podcast and with this on Facebook and YouTube and the other places it goes to everything that you've got. So anybody who wants to get in touch with you or contribute or volunteer or help or be in touch about other matters can do so. Um, we're going to make that very easy wherever this shows up. So the first thing I want to ask is, what do you need from people watching today who want to contribute to your campaign in whatever way? Secondly, um, when you are, are, are running, how do you see um, appealing to the widest possible audience uh, that you're running for, give me a give me a three minute version of the pitch you make on the stump when you only have three minutes or you're on with Rachel Maddow for two minutes and a half and you're gonna have to say it all. I'm hearing the longer version, which is great because we're getting into it. But I, first of all, what can we do for you? And secondly <laughs> of all, how do you present yourself so that you capture that North Carolina voter who may not even agree with you or has never heard of you or has heard of you but isn't sure. Um, are you talking about your 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 very the other candidates running against you and some of their deficits? Are you are you pitching 
yourself as uh, on the track record you have in the in this in the uh, in the Senate in the state Senate? Um, are you bringing in all those elements of being a teacher, an engineer, a theologian, a pastor, um, the mother, grandmother, community member, somebody down that dirt road? How are you pitching it, and what can we do for you? Absolutely. Let me start with the easiest part of that question first. People can go to my website, ericaforus.com. I'm one of us for all of us. I'm one of us who will fight for us, E-R-I-C-A-F-O-R-U-S. And so we'll put the links. Um, you will find that our platform, our campaign has the most comprehensive platform page. You know where we stand on all of the issues. I'm fighting against income inequality. I'm fighting for universal health care for us. It's Medicare for all. Um, and I'm also fighting for uh, the Green New Deal and for us to take bold climate action. Uh, those are the, the top three in my platform. And so how do I message to voters and center them on who I am and the coalition that we are building in North Carolina? Mm. Well, first of all, understanding North Carolina, we should be a purple state, but we are, um, by registration, we have more Democrats and unaffiliated than we do have Republicans, but yet we are led by the GOP on all three levels. And so this is why um, Democrats have been losing in the rural parts of the state. So for us, I'm the only candidate in this race who has lived in, grown up in, organized and built coalitions in the rural part of the state. And that's where we have to um, win. Georgia showed us just what's possible. What do I bring to the table in order for us to flip blue and send a champion to Washington, D.C., who is going to fight for working families, who's going to fight for small farmers, who's going to fight for all of these small businesses and these towns that have been hollowed out by monopolies, is to send someone who has the most experience in this race, who has demonstrated and been very effective in writing policy and implementing policy to decrease the economic distress in the counties that I served in northeastern North Carolina by re-engineering criteria for economic development and jobs development to make them work better in the rural parts of the um, North Carolina and work as well as they do in the urban centers. So that is the strength of our platform. I grew up on my family farm. I'm a dirt road Democrat. The road that my mother grew up on is still unpaid. And so I'm able to resonate and talk to rural voters because they know that um, the infrastructure that is very much needed, and that's why we're so supportive of um, the infrastructure plan, is this is what it's going to take to have these strategic investments so that people um, will be able to grow and be able to thrive all over the nation, um, all over the state. And so last but not least, is my when I was an engineer at Boeing, I did not earn what my male counterparts earned. And it was because of my gender and because of the color of my skin. When I'm talking to those who know what our faith means to us. We are all created equal. A servant is worthy of their hire. And speaking of biblical principles is what sets me apart from everyone else in this race, because those biblical principles can be tied for the fight for $15 minimum wage as the floor, a fight for equal pay for equal work across um, genders and across demographics, the fight to make sure that the poor are not continuing to be, be more poor and that we are, um, we stop this bleed in so many communities where we have this enormous transfer of wealth uh, to the wealthy. Our government should work for all of us, not just the wealthy, not just the well-connected. And there is no one in this campaign, no one in this race, no one who's running the bold platform that we're running to fight for equality, um, to, to become the beloved community that Dr. King preached about, but that we know biblical principles tell us is possible and what we should be aspiring to. How many how many folks are um, jumping into this open seat campaign that have a serious shot at it that you're up against? Well, I would say um, it's probably it's a crowded primary on both sides, but there are three candidates on the Republican side and there are top three candidates on the Democratic side. And um, I would be one of them. So you, you've got quite a thing. Now, when is the primary? The primary is about six and a half months away. The primary okay. is in March. And so we that's why we started early. We traveled all over the state. We visited 100 counties. We're directly engaging voters and expanding the electorate. And, uh, you know, last week I was down in North Carolina in Hot Springs on the Appalachian Trail there um, doing a conference called the Wild Goose Festival where I was a speaker. I've been going down there for the last 12 years. And it's a, it's a wonderful part of the country, but you do notice 
as you drive in through those hills that um, there are some there are some folks that have a little bit of money and then you pass people living in in a broken down trailer you pass a a farm that looks like it you know is just getting by and there's some cars up on blocks in front of it or whatever uh, rusted out pickup and so on it's a really uh, sort of a mixed area now I don't know North Carolina well I know there's some parts with money I know there's a lot of rural areas you know the dirt roads you're talking about but um, I'm wondering how one reaches out in a community where you, you know, you still see some of those Confederate flags on a porch and you, you say to yourself, wow, you know, um, I'm, I'm driving through here with my oldest granddaughter. We're going to a music festival. Um, you know, I wonder, I wonder what these folks have in mind when you, when you, when you see some of that. And of course, if, if you're black in that area and you're also a candidate, you know, there's a whole thing that's going on that must be an undercurrent that um, you've got to deal with because you're the, these are also voters. Um, but hearing what you're saying, I think a lot of those folks uh, would share your concerns. And if they didn't allow the color of skin or the gender to get in the way, you know, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't be voting for you because obviously looking, looking at some of those tumble down places, white and black, nobody's been doing too much for them. Absolutely. And so, Frank, you, you you hit the nail on the head. And so that's why this campaign is resonating. We just started a new initiative, a dollar door campaign for every dollar that's donated to the campaign. We are knocking on a door in a county that Trump won in 2020. And so regardless of who is living in that house and what they look like, yeah. behind every door is someone facing life's most difficult challenges. Um, one more person that we can have that conversation with. Everyone that we see that we're reading uh, across the campaign trail, a lot of folks are still struggling, Frank, and they know that our economy is rigged, our healthcare system is broken, and there's so many towns that have just been hollowed out by monopolies, yeah. and they want government to work better. And so what we have found is as we are um, reaching out and expanding the electorate, we're supporting the Democrats that are there, but we're also talking to unaffiliated voters and Republican voters who know that there have been under investments in their communities and they um, are they are welcoming they see me as a breath of fresh air because they know that I have done the work I am doing the work to um, grow all communities so thank you for that question and so when we put beyond those those superficial limitations of the color of our skin or our gender when we made the effort to reach out to people who don't look like us to people right. who Trump signs flying everywhere. We, you know, what's was was hilarious is we went to a part of North Carolina. We were on the harbor, and every boat in that harbor, it was an affluent area. Every boat in that harbor almost had a Trump sign. But that did not deter us from looking people eye to eye and finding out what they want to see in their next U.S. senator, but finding out what's important to them. And, you know, overwhelmingly, we have been met with such embracing um, from so many voters because they know that I am going to fight for all of us. It yeah. shouldn't matter whether you're from the rural east, the rural west, any of the towns and cities in between, the color of your skin. We need a North Carolina that works for all of us. Yeah, and the thing is, too, just psychologically speaking, you know, I'm pushing 70 years old and I'm white and I guess I'm liberal. But nevertheless, um, you know, some of my friends right here in my community, a guy that just welded some stuff for me because I'm trying to build an outdoor oven so I can cook some stuff out there, um, oh, you know, had a Trump flag. And when Obama was elected, he flew his flag upside down. He knows where I'm coming from. But I show up in my my, you know, my dirty overalls and I'm, I work with my hands as well as being a writer and stuff. Uh, we get on fine on another level. And the funny thing is, I know that. Um, if you went up and knocked on his door, walked past that Trump sign, he would like your guts. He would say, there's a woman, you know, the very courage of going up to the unexpected. See, I think, boy, that would have a powerful impact on some of those voters that I know who are from the right. Just the fact you show up. Yes. So, so many places that we went, they were like, oh, my God, you're running for U.S. Senate and you're here. You're here yeah. in our small town, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And I said, absolutely, because I know what it is to grow up in a place in the middle of nowhere that it seems like no one cares about. They respect the fact that yeah. you 
think enough of their humanity to want to have a conversation with them. And so you are absolutely right. That's the same what we found in your neighbors, the same thing that we're finding on the campaign trail, just the kahunas to come in and just introduce ourselves. And, you know, I'm used to being in spaces where I am the only one, you know, as a black woman who was an engineer um, in, in the, in the nineties, I was um, one of very few. And so I've had to navigate that intersectionality and understand what it is to, you know, to push forward when folks don't look like you and they have a great deal of respect for that. And in my time as a um, North Carolina Senator, the initiatives that I've fought for, I, you know, I can recall um, fighting for um, the wildlife commission and they were trying to make some changes in hunting season and um, where I come from um, hunting season is very important to us. Our hunting heritage is very important. Um, a couple of my sisters uh, even hunt. I don't hunt. Uh, I don't get into sure. that, but you know, so many people in my family do. And so I fought hard um, for these stakeholders to um, understanding, you know, what ecotourism does, um, what hunting season brings into these um, decimated communities. And so fighting hard for them, they invited me to their um, annual celebration. And, uh, you know, Frank, when I drove up on the ground, there were so many pickup trucks with Confederate flags on it, but I pushed past that. I went into the room. There were about 400 people there. Um, there may have been maybe four or five black people, myself included. And, you know, I, I wasn't even worried at all. We had a wonderful fellowship. We had a wonderful celebration because folks knew that what they had in common with me is that, um, our faith, our um, hunting heritage, our care for rural North Carolina. And that makes a difference when you're willing to go above and beyond to let people know we have more than you know in common than what separates us let's fight and let's work together and let's be about being a good neighbor um, to our community and build our community well and the thing is too with you starting six months ahead of even the primary and you're out here in full campaign mode and you're raising money and you're going into people's homes and talking with folks um you know, the fact that you've jumped on it this hard and this early and you, you go talk to anybody who wants to listen to you, I think is a, a sign of how you would work for them if you do get elected, because you're not taking anything for granted. And you're also not relying on, you know, the community. Oh, well, she's a black candidate. So that's what she's going to have. You're reaching out to me. You know, that's, of course, what put Obama in the White House. And the small donor put him there too, counting on people, which is, I'm hoping that we, when we post all the links to your page, I would encourage people to donate to your campaign and to, to help out. And we'll do a little more of that a, a little later, but um, you know, the, the, what you're, what you're, what you're trying to do here in, in reaching out to the unexpected person is exactly what actually would work better than sort of a cynical view saying, well, I'm already going to write all those guys off because I'm a black woman. They're not voting for me, which is a shame because I think you're, you know, the old adage, just showing up is half the battle and you're showing up. We are showing up. We're conceding nothing. We're traveling everywhere. We're going everywhere. We're talking to every community we can possibly talk to because that's what building a broad coalition, a diverse working class coalition is about in order to flip North Carolina blue. But also, you know, more than that, sending a bold champion to Washington, D.C., who's going to prioritize communities over corporations, who's going to fight for the people and not, you know, corporate greed, corporate profits. And yeah. so... We are entirely grassroots funded. And, you know, I, I look at so many other um, politicians who are just, their hands are tied. They can't do anything because they've sold out to corporate interests. You yeah. have so many, um, just, you know, just today, members who are heavily funded by pharmaceutical um, companies cannot even agree to do something about these skyrocketing prescription drug prices. It, it's a shame. And so that is not who we are. We are unbought. We are unbought. And the way that we're staying committed to the people is that we are going to champion our only boss, and that's the people of the state, um, the people of this nation who donate and who sacrifice. And we know that this is a, a tough time economically for a lot of folks um, yeah. and who have not recovered through the pandemic. And so if you can't donate financially, monetarily to our campaign, there are so many other ways that you can help us out. You can share our information. You can spread it through your networks. Um, a $5 donation 
donation, recurring donation will do a lot to help us get across this finish line and be where we need to be um, after the primary to be able mm -hmm. to expand the electorate and invest in getting the word out, but also building, continuing to build that coalition that's necessary. Yeah, Th this is Frank Schaefer you're watching. Um... Uh, in conversation with Frank Schaefer and or listening to it on my podcast. If you like this, please like the program. Uh, please share it with your friends. And I'm talking today with Senator Erica Smith, who has served uh, in the the state Senate in North Carolina and now running for a U.S. Senate seat. Um, I want to turn the page here and talk to you about something else a little bit, get your views on this. It seems to me that coming out of the religious right background, the conservative Republican Party, that um, you know, we we really were hypocrites in the sense that we would talk about family values, we would talk about the fact that the sanctity of life prohibited people from having abortion or even contraceptives when it went more towards a Roman Catholic direction, and yet there were no social programs to help anybody that found themselves pregnant. You know, I got my girlfriend pregnant when I was 17 years old; she was 18, and we've been together now 52 years, so we were lucky because I don't even know who those kids were. But we're still together as grown-ups now. When you're 70, I guess you're grown up. Um, and I love her very much. But looking back, the only reason we were able to stay together is we were in a little fundamentalist evangelical mission community. And I'll say one thing about it. They, they had our back. We got a free place to live. We could go up and eat in the communal dining room. Our medical bills were paid. In other words, we enjoyed everything that some people in Scandinavian countries take for granted. It was a little social welfare state. Nobody called it socialism or communism. That was just Christian love in a little community. And they didn't even approve of what we had done, but they wanted to help us out. So the question I have for you is how do you deal with this right wing movement, much of which is white nationalists these days after Trump, that goes around screaming about family values, doesn't want corporations to provide contraceptives to women because it's against their values, uses the whole thing about religious liberty to really bully other people into almost what would be a theocracy rather than a democracy. Now they don't even account for the vote. They say elections are stolen if they don't win them. Um, it seems to me that this level of hypocrisy needs to be answered with real family values, which means social programs to help that pregnant woman, free medical care for people that otherwise couldn't afford it, a decent educational system, you have their back. The people don't have to keep moving for jobs, but could stay near their families and where they get some support in their community. Coming from my background, I'm sorry, but as I look back on my own past as a right-wing evangelical white man, I feel that my real sin was absolute hypocrisy, shameless hypocrisy. We were demanding things of people and providing absolutely no actual choices. And so it seems to me that your job as a senator when you're elected, and I know that this is where you're coming from, is to deal with some of that hypocrisy and say, look, either put up or shut up, either either fund some programs that actually help the people that you're criticizing or put all this fake family values away that's just thinly veiled misogyny and deliver something. And, and, and so I'm pretty irate on that. And I come from that background. And I just want your views on this kind of hypoc hypocritical family values that don't actually deliver any social programs or social justice to help people with real everyday programs. And it's not just pregnancy and family, it's all the related issues, education, all the rest of it. Yes, and so um, let me real quick address the first part of that question, Frank. Um, for me, it has just been infuri infuriating. It's been insane how we want to talk about family values when it talks about what a woman can do to her body and when, but yeah. we throw all of those principles and all that criticism out of the door when you're talking about how the um, former president, his relationships with women, his defilement of women, his disrespect of women. Um, and so his sexual uh, violence, I guess, um, uh, against women. Yeah. We, are, we don't want to talk about our faith principles. We don't want to talk about uh, family values when it comes to that. And so it's the relegation of women to second-class citizenship. That's part of the problem. And dealing with that openly, I have um, been able to have that conversation about a woman's um, right to choose. And I, I take it from a pro an approach where we first, let's, let's have the conversation 
conversation, let's really dissect what we need meaning about being pro-life or being uh, pro-choice. First of all, if you're pro-life, you don't care, you care more about the baby being born. If you're pro-life, you care about having the social net, uh, safety nets there so that the mother and the child can be able to um, have a better quality of life. And so there's a difference. We established the, the ontology of choice. There's a difference between being pro-life and pro-birth. Pro-birth, you just want the baby to come. You don't care about the socioeconomic challenges that that baby is born into. Um, you don't care whether that baby was conceived by rape or by incest. And so it's just totally asinine for um, for men to, to, to make a decision that mm -hmm. a woman who is impregnated through rape or incest or sexual assault or violence and that she would have to carry that baby to term. But that's what is implied by mm. this new Texas ban, this Texas law. So for me, I, I am pro-choice. My whole entire religion is about choice. My mm. ability to choose um, to have, you know, you know, God as my savior and Jesus as my savior. And so when talking about that conversation, I also um, bring into the conversation about uh, Planned Parenthood and the enormous number of patients that they have who are women who are low income and cannot afford to have the health care. So if you're really pro-life, then you care about sustaining folks' lives who need that access to health care, who need to have the um, financial services, the safety nets to get them through a tough time. So with planning. And I also come with my personal experience. I'm not sure if you know this, Frank, um, but when I was uh, 16 weeks pregnant with my last child, I ran into complications with um, pregnancy-induced hypertension, um, with preeclampsia, and Black women's maternal mortality rates in this nation are atrocious. They're worse than some developing countries. And being um, a victim of that, um, there had to be a decision made. And we had to make a decision on priority of life. And so um, I, I made it to 22 weeks, 23 weeks. And at that point, they were saying, you know, we're going to lose one of you, if not both of you. You need to make a decision. Um, do we deliver now? And if something goes wrong, do you want us to save your life or save your baby's life. Mm -hmm. Sir, Frank, I'm sorry. My former husband could not make that decision for me. My mm -hmm. children, as much as I love them, I had three older children and, you know, they wanted me to choose myself, but mm -hmm. I chose to, to, to let my baby live. And it's not because they wanted their baby brother to die, but they wanted their mother to live. But as difficult as that decision is to make, no one can make that choice but me um, mm -hmm. as the mother and who was risking my life. Um, with complications. And so when I have that conversation, when I share my story, despite um, all of the challenges, you know, I was able to deliver Elias. He was one pound, one half ounce. Um, he um, stayed in the neonatal intensive care unit for six months. Um, he had a tracheostomy and a feeding tube at, at one point, but he came home six months later at now four pounds with a tracheostomy. And I learned just how broken this healthcare system is um, and how hard we had to work to navigate to get the health care that he needed, how we almost went bankrupt and that I had to get rid of every asset just for him to qualify for Medicaid for all. I had good employer-based health care, but there are limitations to that. And it did not give us what we needed in terms of life-saving equipment for him. I had to get a part-time job just to afford the humidifiers, the nosies that went over his tracheostomy as an infant. I had to drive hours upon hours just to get him physical therapy and occupational therapy. So when I say policy is personal for me, I'm able to use my personal experience um, to, to share and have conversations around um, being pro-choice. And so pro-choice should be about the life of the mother and the unborn child at every stage. And I fully agree with you. We need to call this out for the hypocrisy that it is. And we need to fight hard to have the um, social safety nets so that families and women can, can make that decision and they can thrive um, with the decisions that are made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very, very powerful, both personal and, and political and social and religious and moral statement. So I, I thank you for that. Um, I, I would like to reiterate to people watching that uh, I'm urging you to reach out and help Erica Smith as a candidate for the U.S. Senate. Um, if you're listening to her and you don't think we need her in the Senate, you have not been following politics. 
This is this is the person we need there for all of us. When this, as uh, soon as you're off the air, I'm going to go get my credit card and I will be pledging to you for a continuing donation every month. Um, Thank you, Craig. Well, yeah, and I urge other people too. And I, I give to some political candidates, but I don't do much, much of that. Um, one doesn't become too rich writing books, but I really, really believe in what you're doing and I will contribute today and make that a continuing contribution. I, I will come down and you get in touch with me when you're in the midst of your, your campaign. If I can show up with some folks and help out with some part of that, uh, we'll, we'll come. In, in the meantime, um, my sense of the matter is this, and that is that the U.S. is kind of at a watershed talking about health care in the middle of the COVID crisis. You know, we have a government where the former president said that COVID was a hoax. We have a whole group of white evangelicals who are leading the charge on the anti-vaccine movement and who are really acting with their anti-mask, anti-vaccine thing as if somehow, you know, the idea of being your neighbor's keeper is over. Uh, for them. So it isn't just an issue of politics and social programs. You know, are we going to be a crazy nation driven to insane things by fringe groups that are now mainstream in the Republican Party, which is no longer a political party? Look, I knew Ronald Reagan. I knew the Bush. I know both Bushes. I have handwritten letters from Barbara Bush thanking me for my book I wrote about my son in the Marine Corps. These are not monsters to me. I'm not anti-Republican, but there is no Republican Party anymore, in my view. There is an extremist group of people that have been taken over literally by the lunatic fringe. Hey, the left has a lunatic fringe too, but they haven't taken over the Democratic Party. Right. So it isn't, it isn't, you know, and so you're in a you're in a rock and a hard place because you're not just running for the Senate, you're running for the Senate in a climate that is disastrous for the whole country on so many fronts. So I would just tell people watching, man, the chips are down. This is really serious. Uh, when you have a when you have a, a, a semi-obscure writer like me reaching to his credit card to support a candidate, there's a reason for that. I mean, I'm I, I I am taking care of my granddaughter this afternoon, cooking her an afternoon slap, but I'm also taking care of her by making a donation to your campaign. This is personal because we, we need you in the Senate. So talk a little bit about just the climate we're in. I mean, how do you run as a candidate in a day and age when the opposition has literally seemingly gone over the edge of crazy? We're not even in a normal situation anymore where it's just, well, you're, you're for economic justice and they're a little more pro-business. No, 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 no. You know, they're from another planet and you're still speaking English. I mean, we're, this is a weird period to be in. We, we are in a critical time, and especially when we're dealing with so many people who who appear to live in an alternative universe. Yes. We talked about alternative facts and, and the way the other group sees that, but the Republican Party that we have today is not the same Republican Party uh, of the 90s and the early 2000s that I'm used to um, when I became eligible to vote in, in 1988. Right. And so seeing this, the, what has morphed into um, those who are harboring domestic terrorists. I mean, that is disappointing. Those who will not uphold the Constitution. The Constitution used to be everything, um, supposedly, to solid Republicans. But to, to not for them to not want to hold the insurrectionists accountable for their, um, uh, you know, just treasonous conduct on January the 6th. And so how do you run in the face of this? Yeah. You stick to the facts. You stick to the science. You stick to, um, you know, I, I see that you have saved the planet there behind you. I love that yeah. because we have to protect the only planet that God is going to give us as a scientist. It's easy for me to be able to parlay the statistics and what the statistics and the facts are showing us and how that translates translates into policies and positions that we need to take to create the energy system of the future, you know, along with good paying jobs. But we have to cut down on our carbon emissions. Um, I, I'm able to talk to voters about sea level rise on the eastern side of North Carolina. And I'm able to talk to the people in Western North Carolina about access to clean air, clean water, and how um, global warming caused unprecedented floods in Western North Carolina. So how do you run at a time like this? You stick to the facts, you stick to the science, you stick to the policy, and you work hard to create those conversations and opportunities so you can get folks to take a pause and to sit down and listen to what we're fighting for. We're fighting 
fighting to save this nation. We're fighting to save democracy. And the decisions that we make on policies are very well saving lives. We need to um, be able to, to promote policies that are going to help working families build the middle class, the 21st century middle classes, which we definitely have need of. And we need to address this extreme income inequality, having conversations in a scientific way about what is happening, happening and then making the link of how we get there through policy and policy proposals and a platform that is bold enough and big enough to solve the problems that so many people are facing. That's how we get there. And that's how we've been doing it. Yeah. And I mean, you're a science-based person because you're an engineer and you're someone who also has some moral compunction about what we ought to be doing because you're a you're an ordained minister and you you took the trouble to get a degree in theology. You know, it seems to me like, you know, I, I don't want to pander here, but you're with the doctor ordered because what we need is a combination of science and a sense of moral duty. And that's yes. lacking across the board. I mean, that's everything that's wrong with our society right now, left, right, middle politics and everything else is because we're not putting together a science-based view of reality with the idea of empathy and compassion, which comes from some sort of tradition of either religion or philosophy. You combine those things, uh, Senator Smith, and I really genuinely tell you this, I, I will pray for and hope the best for your campaign and come in at any moment. You have my email with my dear producer, Ernie, if we can help more, you know, I'll have you on every day between now and election day. <laughs> if you need me to, we'll make this happen. And I will send you a personal contribution. I urge everybody <laughs> watching to please just get out your credit card. We're going to link everything to you here. Just go to those links, get out your credit card and donate. And if you're in North Carolina, and I know some of you are, because I was just down there, um, it's down for us up if you flip the globe and China's, you know, whatever. So I don't mean down, I mean, across the way, whatever. But um, get involved with uh, Senator Smith's campaign because there are not very many bright lights out there. Here's one of them. We've got, we're talking with her today. The other thing is, is, is in this uh, book of mine coming out November 2nd, Fall in Love, Have Children Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. I talk about the fact that we've designed a culture that basically leads to unhappiness and loneliness. And you know that all the charts are showing people are more lonely, more cut off than ever, precisely because they have put their money interests and career titles ahead of human connection. And that's why we don't have the social safety net. And that's why you were struggling to meet me medical bills. And the right wing talks about pro-life and doesn't help anybody. We, it seems to me, Senator, and I want your comment on this, that we need to redefine what we mean by success. To me, success has to be measured in human connection and compassion and empathy. That's success. The rest of it is all just window dressing. And until we get back to that, um, valuing parenting, and I don't mean even having literal children, but taking care of each other, like I'm trying to support you here. You're trying to support me by being on this program. Right now, you know, you're my mother at this moment because you've come on my program to help me. And I am your brother. I'm your friend. I'm your son. I'm your you know, father, if you want to put it that way, all those roles, because I'm trying to help you in your candidacy. The human connection here is what we're doing here today. It's not about you and me getting richer somehow or more powerful over other people. That's, that's what's lost. So I want you to go into that a little bit with your theology degree and with your engineering acumen and just talk to me a little bit about the intersection of science-based reality combined with empathy and human values that reflect human connection. Talk about that a little bit, because I know you are really qualified to do that. Yes. And also, if we can add in there as well, an ethical form policy, that's um, a conversation that we didn't get into um, this time, but I hope when I come back, we'll be able to discuss sure. it a little bit more. And how important it is for us to understand, we, we say the rise of the religious left, that's what um, this conversation can, can you know, lead to. Mm. And when I'm talking to folks uh, who are just so gifted, um, God has gifted them with an 
enormous talents and for them to be able to use what they do, you know, secularly, but also to understand how our faith should empower us or propel us to work toward kingdom building, work toward that beloved community. And I'll often, you know, take it from the Good Samaritan story. You know, we, we know, we know what the issues are. We know that the path from Jerusalem to Jericho is fraught with danger. We know what the dangers are. So it's time to fix the road. And how do we fix the road? We fix the road like the Samaritan fixed the road. We've got to be concerned about who's broken, who's been beaten up in society, who has been so overwhelmingly oppressed that they're laying on the side of the road almost within an inch of their lives. And then when we figure out how do we policy-wise start fixing the road, we also have to look at the, no one talks about the the one who perpetuated the violence. Let's look at what we can do to address the needs of that person so that they're not on the road, you know, beating people up, robbing, taking from them. What how can we fix that system so that it is not broken and it works for him so that he will know he or she will no longer be found that they, you know, through substance abuse and the opioid epidemic and the crisis that we're in economically, that those folks will have a better path and they, you know, and we can deter them um, from mass incarceration. We, we can look at the ways that we can fix the broken system, but also understanding the strategic investments that we know what the problems are. So let's come together. Let's allow our faith to inform us of how we can work together to support those who are truly going to fight for the people, who are going to prioritize people over profits, who are going to prioritize fixing the road and fixing the broken systems and fighting for justice, fighting for criminal criminal justice reforms so that you don't have overwhelmingly black and brown people incarcerated from a broken justice system that does not give justice fairly or evenly or even, you know, justice is not blind. And so when we look at the ways and the capacity that we have to address these systems and promote equality, that's what true success is about. It's not about how much money you have in your pocket as an individual, it's how many ways ways you use your influence to build systems of equity so that all others can thrive and not just barely survive. That's what my faith means to me. That's what is missing in this political spectrum that we have. I am calling upon um, those who identify with us to understand the enormous power we have when we rise up and we take care of the humanitarian needs. We invest in people with the human infrastructure that we know is made possible when we do those strategic investments. Instead of spending money on endless wars, decades Mm -hmm. upon decades wars, let's talk about building a beloved community, building systems of equity, solving these problems that so many struggling families are facing. Yeah. And I would just remind people listening, you're listening to a Boeing engineer, part of the military industrial complex, as Eisenhower called it, asking you to understand. And and I am a proud father of a US Marine who fought twice in Afghanistan and once in Iraq. And I'm asking you too, to understand that none of these foreign wars and all the industrial spending and billions and trillions we spent on these wars are replacing the fact that we've allowed our own country to not just fall into disrepair, but our social structure to fall in disrepair. And it's ridiculous. And, you know, my son was a Marine and he honorably fought there. And now he, now that war is over and uh, we're, we're looking around at our own situation. And, and uh, Senator Smith is talking about the fact that we need to do something better. And of course, I second that. So you, you can honor the military. And you can honor companies like Boeing that have done so well for the American economy, but you can also say, hey, enough is enough. So you have to understand that between, yeah. Let's start a war on poverty. 
Let's start a war on poverty instead. Let's start a war on global warming. And how we do that is we promote strategic investments and policy and people who are going to fight for building capacity in our neighbors, in each other, in communities, but also sustaining the planet um, and understanding our role in the decisions that we have to make to protect this planet, but to also protect people and provide opportunities for success for everybody. Yeah. Well, I'll wrap it up by just saying I admire you so much and the fight that you had for your son's life and the struggle you had after that with the medical care system. You know, if anybody has been prepared in sensitivity and personal experience to understand where, quote unquote, ordinary folks are coming from, it's you. Um, And I thank you. And again, I'm going to donate to your campaign about three minutes from now. I'm going to get my credit card. It's in my coat on the behind the door there. I will be online looking for your stuff. In the meantime, uh, this is Frank Schaefer. You've been listening to In Conversations with Frank Schaefer. Senator Erica Smith, who's running for the U.S. Senate now, um, has been my guest. My new book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, comes out November 2nd. If you want to do me a favor, pre-order it today from Amazon. Drive my numbers a little bit. But if you have 16 bucks for the book, but don't have $16 to give to Erica Smith, please don't buy my book. Please support her campaign instead today. It's much more important for this country. So uh, do that. Maybe you can help us both. But otherwise, Erica Smith's the person where you want to spend your money today. Please donate. And uh, with that, I hope we have you back. We will follow everything with great care and love. And I admire you so much, Senator. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you for my heart. Thank you to your listeners as well. Thank you. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com. <laughs>